0: Welcome to the 34th Circe Salon. Welcome, Welcome to, to, to
1: Make Matriarchy Great make Again. Matriarchy matriarchy matriarchy. Matriarchy again. <laughs>
0: Long ago, in olden times, this earth thundered with the pounding of horses' hooves. In that long ago age, women decorated themselves and sat on their horses. They would instantly saddle their horses, grab their lances and daggers, and ride forth with their menfolk to meet the enemy in battle. The women of that time not only comforted their loving men with their hands, but could stand by their sides as well and cut out an enemy's heart, with their swift, sharp swords. Still, they were able to harbor great love in their hearts. They were also able to counter the poison of the striking serpent. And with that, we have the opening of the Nart tale, Lady Nart Sana. I am Sean Marlon Newcomb, and I am with, as always, as always, she's there. She's there for everybody. Dawn Sam Alden. Hey, Dawn, can we get you back? Well, we'll have Don back. I, I, here, am, right
1: here. Here. I okay. am right here. Oh, yeah, I am right here. Sorry, I was that. worried
0: maybe like one of those Nart Saga heroines. You were in battle at that moment. I
1: was, in fact, in battle, but I have returned with my loving hands. Oh, and- right.
0: <laughs> loving hands to battle with, and we have with us today. <laughs> As we are going to be talking about the NART sagas, we'll explain what they are. But the person who will explain them is probably the best person we could possibly find to explain them. The man who translated them and brought them to people's attention, certainly in the English speaking world, uh, Professor John Calaruso. Welcome. Welcome, John. Thank you. Actually, you deserve (laughs) this. That's the adoring crowd of NART Saga aficionados. I wish students like that. So, John, tell us about yourself. Uh, you're a linguist, obviously, and a professor of these languages and this mythology. Tell us about yourself, and please uh, introduce the listener to what the NART, N-A-R-T, the NART sagas are.
2: Okay, yes, I am a linguist by training. I obtained my PhD from Harvard in 1975. And Harvard was very conservative at that time. They still required us to learn some languages. And I ended up, by sheer accident, working on some of the languages from the Caucasus Mountain area. And it turns out that some of these are very bizarre, very complicated, and quite distinct, quite different from anything else spoken in Eurasia and probably (laughs) practically anywhere else on Earth. Um, And I started translating NART sagas basically to keep the language up and alive Mm-hmm. When I came here in 76 to Canada, because there was no one around uh, in the region now uh, that spoke Circassian. Now we have about 200 families from Syria. Um, so uh, I landed on Art Sagas. I had a, a grant from the Endowment um, for the Humanities and um, produced uh, produced all this uh, with the help of several Circassians down in New Jersey, in the community in New Jersey. Um, So Nart itself is actually an Iranian word. And why Iranian? Let us not confuse that with Iran. Uh, This is a word from a lost civilization. Uh, There were nomads running across the prairies or steppes, as they're for some reason called, of Eurasia, from Hungary all the way into Western China. Uh, And they dominated the uh, trade uh, in this area, And as far as we can tell, they spoke Iranian languages, uh, probably more akin to Pashto than to modern Persian Farsi. Um, And there is one surviving, or probably two, one surviving spot in the North Caucasus where we have Ossetians. And Ossetians still speak a language descended from these steppe Iranians that were running around. Um, Now, Nart itself simply means hero. Uh, and it goes wherever the tales go. And what we have, uh, as is typical of folklore, is a whole hodgepodge, and mixture of stuff, some of it very old, some of it fairly new, some of it Iranian, some of it local, uh, and uh, it's, it's um, a very rich source of, of material, some striking and, and, and stunning stuff. So the women, as is the culture of their area, the women uh, enjoy enormous status in the tales, and they do that in real life, too. Um, so this is a uh, reflection of the cultural values of this zone.
0: So I uh, just to, to jump in and, and quickly, uh, Don, I know you've got a bunch of questions, too, but I want to follow up on what you just said, just to clarify a few things and certain things I'm chomping at the bit to ask about, because having read stuff about this region, because... As you know from what Don and I talk about on this podcast, we're interested in warrior women, queens, the ancient matriarchies, that sort of stuff. So, lots of stuff. I I really can't wait to ask you. But first, uh, about three or four things come up from what you just said. The first of it is, why did you end up with these languages? How did it happen? Because you were saying it's just like by chance you uh, came upon these languages. What what was it? How did you discover it?
2: (laughs) It's a long story. Actually, Um, I started out in physics. And at Cornell, and my supervisor took my scholarship away from me to give to his nephew.
1: Oh, uh, my goodness.
2: Oh Well, it was the 60s and things like that happened. Um, so I ended up switching from physics into philosophy. And in philosophy, we had to take Greek. And it turned out I proved it to be a polyglot. I didn't know this, but one uh, of my Greek professors sort of uncovered this about me. And so I went from ancient Greek, and then I did a master's. Uh, I did some Armenian, and uh, then I went to Harvard, and I did Persian, and I did Georgian. And on the side, I did Ossetian, because there was an old Ossetian man down in New Jersey, about about four-hour drive south of Boston.
0: I was going to ask you about that, too, because I'm from New York. I'm from Staten Island. Where in Jersey is this this community of
2: Ossetians? <laughs> North Haldon.
0: Uh, where Patterson? Patterson, oh, Patterson. Oh, okay, yeah, up north. Okay, mm-hmm. but not Patterson. Far apart from
2: okay, Patterson, Halden, North Halden. Okay, um, so North Halden. There's a huge mosque. They're, these are Muslims, uh, Sunni Muslims, and uh, there's a big mosque and uh, quite a few families, and, and almost the entire town, in some ways, is, is Circassian. Police force is entirely Circassian. Oh, wow. Um, wow. Yeah. And um, but I was I was at Harvard, and this professor handed me a cassette. He said, My friend says this language has only two vowels. I think he's full of, you know, whatever. And uh, would you listen to it and tell me what you think? So we've, I spent a month transcribing this story in a language called Abaza. And in fact, it had only two vowels. Wow. Uh, uh, and, uh. <laughs> so there's sort, of, sort of the mirror image of what happens in most languages. Most languages, the vowels color the consonants, right? So, ki. Uh, is further forward in the mouth because of the E. uh, And kar is further back. That's normal. Most languages do that. Not these languages. They do it the other way around. (laughs) So the consonants color the vowel. And um, so it's it's a very, very odd situation. And linguistically, they're extraordinarily complicated languages. Very powerful. After Abaza, I did Ubuch. I'm one of the few remaining people that knows any Ubuch. It went extinct pretty well. It had 81 consonants. Uh, Abaza has 60-something. I, I learned a dialect of Circassian called Biedot, Um and that has 68 consonants, I think. Um, so it's it's uh, it was a linguistic challenge, and it was an extraordinary set of languages. So they, they're very, very complicated, very expressive, and... Um, and the language of the uh, tales is sort of archaic. It's bardic language, we call it. It's sort of more complex and rich than the usual conversational stuff. Um, Can I just and, jump in with yeah. one
0: more question? And I'm sorry, no. No, no, I want to hand it over because I know you'll, you've got a bunch. The Iran, one of the other things that have come up, and Don, you and I have talked about this from these different tribes. Like we'll look at stuff like the Masagatai and the Asidones. And they were they're grouped in with Iranic speaking languages, Iranic speaking people. And I, could you talk a little bit more about the distinction that you just made, because this was something that I was always curious about, between an Iranian language family and Iran, you know, the people of Iran and that sort of thing. What is the distinction or the connection between among these groups?
2: Okay, uh, let's go back about five thousand years. Okay. Uh, maybe, maybe six. And what seems to have been going on around that time was that there were people coming up from the North Caucasus into the prairies just to the north and what's now Southern Russia, uh, that kind of area. And um, they, they, they spoke a language that we have reconstructed by systematic comparison with a whole range of languages. And we call this language, this mother language, Proto-Indo-European. And people have been working on this for about 200 years. Uh, and it's quite well known. It's amazing. They were able to, to come up with very plausible arguments about how these people talked, what they, what they talked about, what they believed, and so forth, what kind of food they had, what kind of animals they had, and so on and so forth. Um, and, for example, the word for horse is hros in Norse and all that. It goes back uh, to a Proto-Germanic hros, hros. And this is the same word as cursor, cursor uh, in Latin, So it means a runner, something very fast. Um, And uh, we build on that word by word by word. So this language differentiated. They they invented, um, they domesticated the horse, the first ones to do so. They invented a lightweight kind of wagon or chariot. And they started spreading all over the steps. Uh, They started spreading into Europe. They're spreading down into India, spreading into Western China, um, in a world that at that time was quite wide open. So as they spread out, they lost touch with each other. Their local dialects began to differentiate from each other. Uh, and you ended up with various what we call daughter branches. So the mother gave off daughters. And one of those daughters is Germanic from which English and German and Norse and all that are derived another is Slavic, Russian and Czech and so forth. And another one was what we call Indo-Iranian. And this is, one group went down into India and sort of pursued their their um, own history. And you get all these languages of Northern India like Hindi and Gujarati, Nepali and whatnot. And another group stayed sort of up in the steps and moved down a little bit further to the west into what we call now the Iranian plateau. We don't know what languages are spoken. Well, we know there was something called Elamite spoken there before, before this daughter group of Indo-Europeans went down in there and converted it. The ones that went, th- the ones that went down in there, became Southern Iranians, or sometimes they're called Western Iranians. It's a bit confusing. The Western Iranians is the older terminology. The ones that stayed up on the steps and pers- continue to pursue that kind of lifestyle, uh, we called uh, Northern Iranians. And the older term was Eastern Iranians because they, they were thought to be further east of Iran, um, and they they also became mercenaries for the Roman Empire and were brought into places like England and, and France and whatnot. And the reason we're wearing trousers and have jackets and shoes as opposed to togas and sandals is because we adopted the clothing of these people uh, as the Roman Empire was falling apart. Uh, so they, they had some very substantial impact that's generally not recognized. Um, and yet... Uh, uh, if you study them a little bit, it, it jumps out at you. Oh my goodness, of course, I'm wearing trousers because of these, these characters. Um, and trousers were more efficient in riding on horseback. Right. Um, so uh, their languages, they, they apparently quickly gave up their languages, settled down to the more easy life of, of uh, civilization and adopted whatever the local language was. Although we do have traces uh, of things. Um, uh, Intish, you might recall Lord of the Rings, or like the ints. Uh, Intish. This is from an old English word, antisk, and it's actually an Iranian word for frontier, oh. people from the frontier. Uh, Ukraine is a Slavic word meaning from the frontier, but it's unrelated. It's not uh, not part of that linguistic game I was playing. Um, so uh, when we speak of, of arts, we have other words like this that pop up, and Nero, in, in Rome, Neros is from the same original word uh, in the mother language. Uh, Greek Greek has andros or An aner, uh, possessive andros, Android, and all that for a man. That's also the same root. Um, and so we can we can do this linguistic game, and we can find what we call cognates. We can find cousins, which are actually the same word, descended from the mother, but in different daughters. Okay. Uh, so it's a tricky game, yeah, and there's lots of fighting and all that typ- typically provides uh, a vigorous uh, academic pursuit. Um, but it's amazing uh, that they've been able to do this, and I've some small role in this, relating the languages of the Northwest Caucasus, uh, also to Indo-European. It was embraced by a few Indo-Europeanists, and, but I was later vindicated by the geneticists because they found the same link, right. uh, genetics. Um, and the archaeologists are now interpreting material in a similar fashion. So we have three independent branches linguistic analysis, genetic analysis, and um, uh, archaeological analysis, linking the North and particularly the Northwest Caucasus to this Indo European culture uh, in, the, in the steppes. Actually, it has a name, it's Yamnaya culture.
1: Right, right. yes. We, we've, we've been talking quite a bit about, about the. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
2: yeah. And in fact, um, the Circassian self-designation, uh, it sounds weird, the D is originally an R, uh, actually is the same word as Aryo, uh, which is apparently what the, uh, the Nazis here, <laughs> it's apparently what the Indo-Europeans call themselves, and it just means person, people which is the most mm. common ethnic self-designation right. on the
1: planet. Right. Who are you?
2: We're people. Who are you? You know, that kind of encounter. Right,
1: right. yeah. We are the people, and who are you? Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you are
1: the others, yeah. You have that
2: funny thing on your head. It's called a hat? What? <laughs> 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 that kind of thing.
1: So yeah. I wanted to um, dig into this um, Iranian uh, connection a little bit more, because uh, you say in your preface that... Uh, um, some of the traditions of the Iranian speaking steppe nomads, um, <laughs> the Scythians, the Sarmatians, and the Alans. Alans. Um, right. Yeah, Alans. Okay, great. Yes. Um, well, Alan
2: least- is Aryan in another, in, with the RY going to an L. Okay,
1: okay. okay. We, uh, we asked uh, John off air before we started to correct our pronunciation because uh, Sean and I have been reading this material. Um, but not speaking it aloud, so uh, right. Right. <laughs> so we uh, appreciate uh, the corrections, so mm-hmm. we of course, you know with our w- we have been studying this migration of um of the uh the um Anatolian farmer DNA and all and um yeah, what former, we yeah
2: went yeah. Renf- theory yeah. mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: Um, so we are looking for, uh, you know, and we speak quite a bit uh, about this with Vicki Noble, who has been a frequent guest and who mm-hmm. um, is a, uh, a student of um, uh, Maria Gambutas yeah, uh-huh. and, and her theories. So we when I saw in your preface that you mentioned a, con- uh, a possible connection with uh, Scythian Sarmatians yeah. that, you know, rang a bell for me because we have been talking with Vicky about the idea that um, when the, the waves of invasions from the Indo-Europeans and the Yamnaya came mm-hmm. that, um, that the, the people who had been settled in the Danube River region mm-hmm. um, sort of uh, scattered in two directions. Um, some of them went uh, south and east, uh, through Anatolia and eventually possibly ended up all the way in India. And then there were the groups that went north and east and um, may have ended up in this uh, Caucasus region that we're talking about now. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if you found any linguistic um, connections, uh, any, any sort of echoes of uh, what may have been that connection.
2: Okay, well, Winfrey's Winfrey's ideas are largely now abandoned by most workers in this area. Um, The the timing's not right. Uh, It's clear that agricultural agricultural spread, that there probably were terms that went with it that we still could could find and work on and all that, but it could not have been Indo-European. The people in Anatolia which has always been a kind of a complicated mixed place. Only recently in modern history has it been more or less a single empire or country. Um, The people in Anatolia spoke a branch of Indo-European that's very archaic. And my colleagues uh, are beginning to come around to the idea that, in fact, it represents a split off from an even older version of Proto-Indo-European. So now we hear of, you know, original Indo-European or Indo-Anatolian and we hear of, of uh, canonical or uh, normal Indo-European, That kind, these kinds of terms, they're not really settled yet. Um, there are some problems with Anatolian that set it apart from everything else that we see descending from Indo-European. Um, some of which I can actually explain by comparison by comparison with some of the things that have gone on in the Northwest Caucasian languages, Circassian, Ubykh, Abkhaz. The uh, spread of agriculture uh, would have gone with plant matter and things like that. Um, and there are some funny words, and I, I've shown this, I have yet to publish this, but um, for example, uh, there are some words uh, for... Um, Garlic, in Latin, um, that resembled the word for lily in Tamil. You know, Tamil belongs to a different language family. It's called Dravidian, right. and there's some effort to try to to relate that to Elamite, which was the pre-Indo-European language of of Iran. And if you go further west, you get Ur uh, in ancient Mesopotamia. Ur is Ur two R's and an A, is a word for settlement or village in Proto-Dravidian. Uh, and then nearby to Ur was Uruk. The Uruk part is also Proto-Dravidian for uh, nearby. <laughs> so uh-huh. it Works perfectly. And the word uh, lily, ira, uh, and Alium in Latin, uh, they're botanically in the same family. Um, so I know because I I dug out one of my wife's lilies, and I thought it was an onion.
1: Ah. <laughs> uh, so uh,
2: it was a mistake, gardening mistake from a couple of years back. Uh, um, <laughs> so this is the kind of thing that people uh, should be looking at, and, and there's some words for river match into this and whatnot. Um,
0: John, can I just just a quick mm-hmm. on yeah. that because uh, the the track that Dawn is taking that we look at a lot on this this program is what these this Anatolian world would have been like before this Indo-European invasion. You're talking about Dravidian now. Is there any, do you know, of? is there any connection between the, the linguistics of the Anatolian world, what those languages sounded like, and Dravidian? Is there some indication based on what you've just been saying that there might have been a language family that was connected in terms of their spread? Meaning the people who were there before the Indo-Europeans yes. had a different uh, a different kind of civilization.
2: Well, I, I, yes, I, I think what you did have was was a farming, settled farming civilization um, that uh, was able, capable of making up cultic centers, uh, which we, we have found uh, as late Neolithic stuff in in Turkey, right, uh, Eastern Turkey. Um, and probably extended as, uh, uh, through the Mediterranean, at least as far as the Italian peninsula. Uh, so that would be one of my arguments. And then extended eastward uh, and was basically pushed south by Indo-European pressure. And uh, similarly, the, the nomads came in um, and brought genes, that, you know, for t- tolerating milk and yogurt and things, came in to Western Europe um, And to some extent, they probably may have had a symbiotic, more or less peaceful. I know Maria Gambutas, whom I greatly admire, um, uh, saw it more uh, of a kind of warlike encounter and patriarchy, replacing matriarchy and these sorts of things. There may have been something like that, but uh, I've argued uh, with some, looking at some Irish material, that we actually have a fairly good case that they cooperated And they provided security and meat, and the other people, the farmers, the the older Europeans, provided um, uh, vegetable matter and fruit and and things like this and grains. Uh, So that between the two of them, they ended up making a kind of resilient uh, agricultural and economic base. Um, Now, one of the things is that Ario, when it goes into Europe, means noble, uh, aristocrat. Uh, Arist is, is superl, A-S-T is a E-S-T of English. It's uh, the most Ari. Um, and we have some archaic Germanic inscriptions that also have Aryo. Uh, when you go east and, and further into the steppes, you would have encountered other, other nomads of some sort. Mm-hmm. And that became a, an ethnic polarization. So the Aryans of which Iran is a very variant of that word the Aryans encountered the non-Aryans, and we hear about all the tales and from Sanskrit lore and all this and and Zoroastrian material about the Aryans versus the non-Aryans and those are the enemy and so forth. So we get the hostility in the East. We don't get it in Europe. There's no linguistic trace of that. Uh, So I I would say that, I mean, things like Minoan civilization is probably an outlier of old Europe, which is what Maria called it. Uh, So the Minoan civilization perhaps... uh, some of the, uh, the older stuff. And what what we do is we look for river names and odd place names, and we try to retrieve older languages that way. So I'm sitting in a place called Ontario, which is Iroquois Iroquoian of some sort. And we don't quite know what it meant, but we know we can recognize the language from which it came. And and near, near me, about an hour east of me is Toronto, which means sunken log.
1: (laughs) Yeah yeah I spent many years in Chicago, which is you know Chicago, the land of the stinky onion. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: So, so john with with the Minoan, as you alluded to, so you're saying in that one, that outlier would have been not would have been more like what you describe in the East, where there's an antagonistic clash. Uh,
2: well, it certainly ended up being antagonistic with the invading Greeks mm-hmm. uh, for sure. Um, probably initially, though, perhaps not. It might have been just a peaceful outlier, southern outlier of old European civilization. Um, There are some funny things kicking in. There's Basque, for example, in the Pyrenees. This is non-Indo-European language. Uh, We have Georgian in the Caucasus, which is is clearly not related to to other Caucasian languages. Uh, It might be related to a language called Borushaski in northern Pakistan, that area, in the Hindu Kush. Um, uh, they're Dagestani languages uh, they're, they're not related to, to the northeast Caucasian they're not related to the northwest Caucasian we have three language families
0: wow. in an area
2: the size of Spain with about 50 languages all right. and they're distinct so some of them may have been part of this spectrum of a kind of southern zone of agriculture um, going from uh, Neolithic Anatolia eastward through Iranian plateau and all westward uh, into uh, into Europe, um, so you have to look at uh, river names, old place names, and whatnot. And these often reveal uh, features of the earlier earlier languages that were were in the region. And we do have these traces. We have the we have the Basque. We have the stuff from the Caucasus. We have Dravidian. Um, we have elamite which people are working on. Um,
1: so definitely so, indications of a people that traveled distances that were. You know, for yeah, one so, reason or another, there was yeah. definitely travel there.
2: Yeah, there it would have been trade in in uh, food, food items, for sure. Interesting. Um,
1: yeah, yeah,
2: dried out things so that would have endured along uh, long trips.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I have I have one more question before I turn this over to Sean. Um, is uh, in Adrian Mayer's introduction there is a tantalizing little little uh thing that was that she dropped in there about um the the language on the um oh heavens now i've lost the page uh mm. the the vases the,
2: the vases yes yeah. yes the yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah that uh they called you in um to take a look at these you know quote unquote nonsense scratches you know on these vases and it yeah. turned out to be um, remnants of of their their sort of names, like nicknames for the uh for the characters. Well,
2: it varies, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: So um oh here we go, yes. That the 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 mysterious letters might uh might actually be remnants of foreign languages mm-hmm. and um that uh they were phonetic renditions of phrases that um in, in some of these ancient languages, Uzbek, Circass- Circassian, um, Georgian, but used with Greek letters. Exactly.
2: Um, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so tell us a little bit about, uh, and, and, you know, these were on um, illustrations of uh, Amazon warriors.
2: Yes. <laughs>
1: so tell us a little bit about how that came about. <laughs> <Okay>. That's fascinating.
2: <laughs> well, Adrian approached uh, me out of the blue. I wanted to know if I would help her uh, uh, look at some of these vase writings. Uh, I I didn't know anything about Greek vases, although I studied Greek. I never found them interesting. Um, And so uh, she was very clever. She would uh, write out or type out, uh, sometimes uh, uh, something scanned, uh, what was on a vase. She wouldn't tell me anything about the pictures on the vase at all. And uh, I looked at this stuff. And I was helped by the fact that I was privy to efforts on the part of Circassians and Caucasians and all to represent their language uh, in Latin script uh, in an early version of the internet. So um, language language um, sa- sounds, for example, like t, duh, duh, where it's different from tuh or duh because the larynx is actually shut. It's uh, you feel like you're choking when you say it. Uh, they often would write a T and D together um, which is apparently something also done among uh, um, American Indians when they have similar sounds and are trying to represent some of them um, so I sort of had an introduction to, to efforts to, to capture these, these languages this way now they, they tend to use Cyrillic um, modified Cyrillic orthography um, but in any event uh, so having looking at some of this stuff, and I see a TD there, and think, okay, that's a, probably a T. We call it ejective, ejective T. t. Uh, maybe this is a, a Well, And I knew from linguistic work on Greek that there was some dispute about how some of the Greek sounds were originally pronounced. And one of them was the letter Chi. looks like an X. Whether that was a, a K or that was a H. Uh, because later... Other, other sounds in its series so sort to of call like theta and, and phi became ph and ph. Uh, So chi may have led the way in this phonetic shift that we see in the history of Greek. And uh, so there were lots of chi's here and there, and I was a little, okay, maybe it's a k, maybe it's a h, and you know, that kind of thing. So, so often she'd send me something, and I would say, this is a language, but I don't know this language, and I don't know what's going on here. But um, uh, you hear something that looks like a, uh, like an indirect object or here something looks like a direct object, but I can't tell you anything more about it. Right? Uh, she sent me something else, and I say, this is garbage. You're sending me garbage. You're, you're jerking me around. And she laughed and said, yeah. Uh, because I had studied glossolalia, talking in tongues, uh, which you also get in, in sometimes in nonsense uh, songs, uh, tra-la-la and things like that. Uh, and they lack certain sounds. They're not natural. They are skewed. Uh, so cousin and guz are generally absent. So I see a whole bunch of T's and P's and L's and stuff, and no cousin and guz anywhere. I say, yeah, this is probably just tra-la-la, you know, and uh, let it go. But there was one particular vase uh, that deserves perhaps more focus here. And that was one that uh, had somebody saying no ra teblo on it. And I said, oh, okay, that's circassian. It's got two R's in a row, and that's circassian. Uh, phonetics, and I could even tell you what it means. It, it means this is this is the one who passed by went far away to a, a flat open area and stole something from these people. Okay, and, she's, and you can say it all in one word in Circassian. It's, it's very powerful language. I wow!
1: Like. Yeah, um,
2: and um, I, oh yeah, and I left out the old part, which is of course. <laughs> Of course, this is the one that went on. You know, blah, blah, blah. Um, so she said, are you sure of that? I said, yes. And she said, again, are you sure of that? I said, yes. I said, exactly what I mean. I agree. Piece by piece analysis of what what's that word how it means that. And she said, you just translated the goose vase. Wow. <laughs> I said, well, that's good. What's that?
1: <laughs> right.
2: And she showed me an image. And it's, it's a lost, from a lost play of Aristophanes. Where a man has stolen a goose, and the goose gets killed, the owner's angry, he's caught, and he's going to be whipped by a man who says, No rara tableau, and instead of wearing togas like the two Greek figures on the vase, is wearing trousers and a jacket.
1: Wow. Actually.
2: And this would be a, an Athenian policeman wearing Scythian or Scythian clothing um, from uh, the nomads of the steppes, apparently extended down to the Caucasus. Uh, even down today, they still wear, you can Google Circassian dancing or something, and you can still see them wearing uh, clothing that's, that's descended from, from these old Scythian outfits, um, and from the trousers and, and jackets and, and boots and all. Um, so we know that the Athenians hired these people and brought them over for uh, police work, an equivalent of, of police. Uh, we also have some indications they may have been allowed to participate in the Olympics with the Greeks something which would have pissed off the Macedonians who weren't allowed to do it. <laughs> but um, um, it's, it was extraordinary. And it was, in fact, uh, the, the vase is housed in a, a, um, a wing of the Metropolitan Museum in New York City. I was at a conference in New York City, and I took off the afternoon to go see the vase, and the gallery was closed for renovations. Mm. Uh, they put me in touch with the curator. He didn't know anything about any translations and didn't want to be bothered. <laughs> oh <laughs> dear! Yeah, I've never actually seen the real vase, Oh,
1: um, wow.
2: but uh, it, it's it's available. Uh, we did about thirty of these items, and I think Adrian put up um, about thirteen or fourteen of them because they are the most solid. There's mm-hmm. a bunch more. I mean, there's one that says she has curly hair, and it's an. Ah! It's an Abkhazian, and it's over the head of a woman who has curly hair. Uh, there was another one that says, let the dog loose. And I thought, okay, let the, it's what it says. It's an Abkhazian that says, let the dog loose. Um, Circassian dog is he. Ubuk um, so, uh, dog is rr. Uh, but Abkhazian dog is la. And here it was la, blah, blah, something. Uh, so let the dog loose. And it was two ladies uh, in sort of Scythian clothing, and between them is a dog running with, with the leash clearly flying in the air. Huh. Um, so what that's about, I don't know. That's what it said, and that's what's going on on the way. hunting,
1: maybe? Who maybe knows? Hunting, yeah.
2: maybe, maybe, you know, the, to to race or, or attack yeah. an intruder or something. I don't know.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, so just having fun with their dog. <laughs> um and, and then there was one, it's, a, it's in her later book on Amazon, Ashtashit, Ashteshit, um, which is the name of a female pharaoh. And Egyptologists have puzzled over her name because it's not Egyptian. I said, it's transparently, and she was known, she was famous for, for, for heading, leading the army in battle and pursuing the fleeing enemy and killing, cutting down fleeing enemy. Um, I said, okay, it's transparently Abkhazian. Ah uh, is some kind of indefinite object. Sh is foot or trace, leg or foot or trace, trail. to is after. Sh is to kill, and t is the one that, the one that kills, following people, which is exactly wow. what she was known for.
0: Wow. So, do you, does that mean you think she might have been from that region? Is that why she had the name? Or she I, I think,
2: see, there there was a long tradition of people from Abkhazia and Circassia uh, going down into the Middle East. Uh, they always said they were slaves. That's an incorrect inco- incorrect translation, but they sort of put themselves out as servants and, and whatnot and uh, often worked their way up into uh, important positions because they were pagans at that time, and they therefore could become what they call janissaries. They could become warriors, and often they became very powerful, uh, very important uh, people at the courts and so forth. And my guess is that this has been going on for thousands of years. And that we have a glimpse here uh, of an Abkhazian girl who went south and became a pharaoh. What was um, her name again? ash ta um A-S-H-T-A-S-H-A-T or E-T. I think it's, it's shit. Sh is to the kill. Uh, there's a sh as well, but this is a shit. <laughs> ash
1: that's interesting. It just reminds mm-hmm. me of uh, um, when I lived in Chicago, I did a piece called Warrior Queens, uh, a derived theater piece called Warrior Queens. And mm-hmm. one of the things that we found in our research is that um, when, when Queens went to war, when Queens committed their countries to battle, mm-hmm. um, that generally they w- would not stop until they had wiped their enemy off the face of the earth.
2: Interesting. Mm-hmm. So
1: whereas, you know, men, uh, Kings would tend to go to battle for like, we want this section of land or, mm-hmm. you know, they gave us an insult. So we're going to battle them. Queens mm-hmm. would resist going to battle, resist, resist, try to placate, try to negotiate, try to do, you know, everything except commit to war. But once they committed, they tended to be incredibly brutal. And, mm-hmm. and would just destroy their opponents. So the fact that this queen was known for cutting down people who were fleeing, mm-hmm. so they she had already won the battle clearly, mm-hmm. and they were running away, and she still wiped them out, is mm-hmm. very much in keeping with that.
2: Yes, yes, and that's 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 a nickname. It's also important to understand that, in particular, of Abkhazians and Circassians, as well. Uh, had two names. They had a secret name known only by intimates in the close immediate family. And then their public name was a nickname. Uh, And so it's perfectly natural that this pharaoh would have had a a nickname that uh, also described her conduct in battle.
1: That's fascinating. Yeah. That's incredible. Well, thank you so much.
2: Oh, you're welcome. Then there's Amazon.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yeah. You want to talk a little bit about that before we launch into the individual sagas?
2: Well, I could, yeah. Of course, um, it had a Greek folk etymology. And Adrian actually tracked down exactly the Greek uh, author, classical author, who was trying to explain this word uh, as no breast or something like that. Uh, but one doesn't aim an arrow from the chest, although I have seen pictures of Mongol women doing that. Uh, normally, you pull it up to your cheekbones so you can sight right. their, at the arrow fly. Um,
1: and also, none of the illustrations of Amazons on Greek vases are missing a breast.
2: No, no, no they're they're fully endowed. Yes. And, um, you know, it's, it's a nonsense word. It's a Circassian word. Uh, and I was translating uh, Lady Nart Sana. And Sana is a, a sacred kind of heroic drink. We're not quite sure what, but we think basically just wine. Um and uh she was also called uh Shisla, Guasha. Gwasha. Uh is January and Guasha's Lady, and the title comes after the, the name. So Lady January, don't ask, I have no idea what's going on there. Right. Um Lady Nartsana, Nartsana Guasha, Um Little Golden Knees, Disha Gold Grotch knee. Uh, pretty golden knees because she wore uh, kind of tights down to just above the knee and boots just up uh, to the bottom of the kneecap and her her knees themselves were exposed and suntanned so she was called pretty golden knees <laughs> and then she's called Amazon and I thought well there you go it's as the, maz is, is forest, ah is uh, intimate prefix and na's mother Amazon and she's in a forest in, in the story and all. But it's also possible, and Robert Graves picked this up and mentioned this in his collection of Greek Greek myths, uh, two volumes with, from Penguin, or at least by 800 pages, um, that the Amazons had some remote and mysterious connection to the moon. Okay, that's Circassian phonology. That's Circassian sound change. So maz is forest, and maz is is moon, but if maza is not stressed, as it, is, it would not be in Amazon, okay, it comes out exactly like forest. <laughs> so it collapses its vowel qualities, and so maza in Amazon is actually ambiguous. It could mean forest mother or moon mother, but because she's in a forest, I translated as forest mother. Um, but this is where the word comes from transparently, and its associations and whatnot, and I assume like like most of the culture in which these these ancient peoples were embedded, that it had very strong links to the actual nomads uh, north in the steppes, um, and that uh, for some reason they, they had ladies that would fight, um, and I guess you know, eventually you know, they got older, settled down, and, and have a more routine uh, life, but uh, even so, uh, when the Tsar was, uh, when the Russian Revolution was taking place, the Tsar had a protective coterie uh, uh, or squad of women warriors from the Caucasus. Um, I don't know what happened to them. I think they were basically sent back to the Caucasus. Um, but uh, it's, it's known that the women in the Caucasus would fight. Um, they enjoy enormous freedom uh, sexually, uh, socially their um, prescribed roles are very traditional but they have enormous prestige for those roles um, and they're also seen as having the wisdom and intellect that the men tend to lack <laughs> <laughs> yeah, admittedly so I mean admittedly so <laughs> wonderful, I love so, it it's amazing, it.
0: we had on uh Walter Penrose, who's a professor, uh, and he studies a lot of the warrior women. He's a friend of uh, Adrian's as well. That's how uh, we discovered him. And in his book, uh, Post-Colonial Amazons, he talks about the Circassian women, the women of the ca- Caucasus, I should say, and mm-hmm. how they just continue to have that warrior tradition, like you say, right up until, you know, modern era. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, I, what I'm interested in too is that this. We can transition to the stories this way: is the Circassians specifically, because you, you, I think that's the language that you specialized in. That that was your entree to this world. And the Circassian women, from so much stuff that I've read and encountered, they are there's almost a mystical way that they're talked about. You know, there's there's they there's so many different stories of the Circassian women throughout the millennia. So, could you maybe tell us a little bit about just the the culture, the language, and women's uh, role in the culture. And also, since we're called Circe, I believe from what I've read from you, that's from a Circassian name, right? Yes,
2: it is a Circassian name. Uh, It's the oldest. It's the first attested Circassian name we have because the Odyssey is a bit older than the classical period where we start hearing about Amazons, although there was an Amazon fighting at the Trojan War and all, and Um, the C's are pronounced K's in the original Greek. So Circe was actually pronounced Kyrke, And this is the sorceress, the enchantress, uh, that Odysseus encounters in the Odyssey. And he stays with her for a full year um, while his men are, have been turned into swine by the magic of Kyrke. Um, Kirke, it's not clear what it means in Circassian, but it is clearly Circassian because it's also the root for Kirkatai, uh, an early warrior band of some sort mentioned by classical authors. Uh, and it's the root for Circassian itself because Circassian comes from the Italian Circas, and the CI is going to, or CE is going to be C automatically in Italian. Um, so Kirke becomes Chirke. In Italian. Uh, why Italian? Because the Renaissance Genoese and Venetians had extensive trade with the Circassians for silk and silk garments. Um, and the <clears throat> the Silk Road was sort of coming to an end at Western Terminus um, in the hands of the Circassians, so to speak. With the rise of the Ottoman Empire um, and their efforts to try to, to cut in on the silk trade, um, um, the Italians sort of withdrew from their usual contact, and what they did was they took thousands of Circassians and transported them to Italy, um, where they, and they diverted the silk uh, further north to keep it out, out of Ottoman hands and brought it down to Italy and made brocade garments in Italy uh, throughout the Renaissance <laughs> using Circassian artisans. Um, there was a professor of of, uh, uh, history of costume, of all things, from Italy, contacted me some years back, and sent me a map showing where the Circassians had settled. And the area between Naples and Rome was almost entirely Circassian. Um, And now uh, there's fair evidence that Leonardo da Vinci's mother was a Circassian. Oh, that's Um, interesting.
0: That's fascinating. And
2: and there was a Medici, uh, the one that became a, a cardinal, uh, his mother was Circassian as well um, they're the women, looking at
0: uh, da Vinci's DNA I believe they think they found yes. the fathers and now so you're saying the mothers may have been Circassian oh
2: very okay. well Boris, Boris Johnson's grandmother was Circassian oh. <laughs> they, keep, they keep popping up uh, in funny spots uh, <laughs> <laughs> excuse me um, the, the women are, were were idolized in some ways Um for procreative reasons, for one one thing, but but also as a kind of stabilizing element in a society that was prone to chaos. Uh, So, for example, one of the very powerful uh, forces or obligations, uh, if you were in the Caucasus, this is true across the entire Caucasus, uh, was vendetta. So if you killed someone from another clan, even accidentally, that clan had full, full authority to go after someone from your clan to kill them. Right. And only the men, <laughs> not the women. They were not subject to vendetta. Um, and vendetta obligations persisted for seven generations. Uh, very serious. Um, they were they were suspended only during warfare. And even there, sometimes there was confusion, on, you know, whether uh, they should still be fighting each other like that. And if there was a fight between two men, a woman could stop the fight by throwing a handkerchief between them. Um, this is like almost like you know medieval romance kind of stuff. Um, but that was true until the early 20th century, perhaps even now. Um,
0: like a football yeah. game too. It's like the referee throwing the uh, flag.
2: Yeah, that flag. Yes, is probably where the referees got it from from Renaissance behavior, chivalric uh, conduct. Um, and uh, often sports are archaic. They have, they preserve f- archaic features. Um, another one was that uh, more dramatic. If you were uh, desperate, you could try to sneak into uh, an enemy's village, find a woman, rip open her bodice, and put her breast to your mouth. Um, nothing erotic about that. That was a symbolic suckling. And then you were linked by milk. And, um, and therefore, the the vendetta was dissolved. Uh, it was a, a joining, a unification of clans. Um, so they played a, a vital role there. And the men were uh, caught up in a kind of culture of bravado and, and, um, um, oh, what would you say? Um, well, belligerence. Uh, and the women stood outside of that, um, and offered advice and wisdom. Um, it was something very much like a matriarchy. I don't like the terms patriarchy, matriarchy because I think that they're too clumsy. I think uh, we need a more nuanced view of these kinds of systems. But um, the, the Iroquois here are about half hour down the road. I've, I've dealt with them a bit and been at some of their meetings. And they nothing, nothing gets by unless the elder woman at the meeting agrees to it. Uh, So she has the final say. Uh, So I've seen it in action. Um, And uh, it's a matriarchy, at least in in terms of collective action, approval of collective action. The wisdom of the elder woman dominates, uh, takes precedence over everything. And that's also true of of Circassians. Um, And they can even invite you into their bed. Um, But they're not to let their husband know. That's crucial. Um, so they, they have enormous freedom and um, high regard. And that comes out, of course, in the Nart Sagas. There's Lady Satanaya, She's a symbolic mother of the war band, mother of a hundred. Uh, there's Lady Adif, which is a shining elbow. Uh, she's a crescent moon sort of woman. There's Lady Tree. And so this is the old Axis Mundi uh, folk theme that goes all across Eurasia. Christmas tree, Indra tree in India, pole, mm-hmm. <laughs> Maypole, whatnot. <laughs> but in circassian she's she's a, a woman and uh, this I is do also- love,
1: I do love I do love the the aspect of uh, and I think you you wrote this in your notes the idea that trees exist in three different realms at the same mm-hmm. time that yes. they you know that they they have roots down into the ground they the, the trunk of the tree exists in the same realm that humans do but their branches stretch up into the heavens mm-hmm. so there is this sense of you know, a deeper wisdom, um, and that Lady Tree embodies that deeper wisdom of the three different realms. I thought mm-hmm. that was fascinating.
2: Mm-hmm. Anyway,
1: sorry, didn't mean to interrupt.
2: Well, you. Oh, well the, the god of the forge uh, is setting out to find whatever, he, something is, is never said what. And Lady Tree knows. She says the world has no edge. Um, the world is round, basically. I don't know how they knew that, but the, that was part of the wisdom. Um, the world is round, yeah and exactly. the, the tree the the world tree spans the three zones the, the cosmic heavens the the worldly mundane zone here middle earth and then the fertility and treasures under the ground Yeah, um, yeah. kind of a,
1: fascinating
0: well, that may yeah. be a good good way to go into some of the tales because there's the the magic apple uh, the tree with the magic apple. And yes. that is the, there's the character of in, pronouncing her name, Setania.
2: Setania, yeah.
0: Setenaya. She's very significant throughout all of these. Can you, mm-hmm. can you just talk a little bit about her and her tales?
2: Uh, sorry. Yes.
0: Yeah. If you just, uh, just say a little bit about some of her tales and just why well, she, well,
2: yeah, she's um, uh, she's comes from afar. Okay. So like Guinevere and King Arthur, she's, she's not a native. Uh, she's uh, um, in a, a city depicted as a labyrinth, and it's called the Gondrund. <laughs> it's hard to say, but um And uh, uh, the elder, an art leader, who's uh, an old man for some reason, uh, goes to woo her, and she mocks him. And um, there's a, a humorous exchange, a kind of insulting back and forth between the two of them. And uh, he's determined to have her and abduct her. Um, but also, there's another question of abduction. And um, she has she has a, a child that she rears in a grave mound, and brings him forth. So she actually rec- re- has like a dead baby and resurrects him somehow. And he's gigantic, and he's to go out and and uh, save his. Uh, Father or cousin, it's not his. The relationship is is left indeterminate. They save him from a, a tre- treacherous feast, uh, which is also a theme in Russian lore. And um, he does so, creates havoc and mayhem, and overcomes all his enemies. And um, then goes riding off uh, for a joyride afterwards, uh, leaving his stunned father safe and sound, but, but bewildered. Um, his war was a meg, or was a medge, um, son of the wild boar in an Iranian. Uh, and he goes back to Satania and says, it's crazy, big, gigantic man came in and saved me and blah, blah. And uh, who is he? Well, what do you want him to be, your son or your nephew or something? It's also a son, in the, like a son in that local um, kinship system. So he says, well, my son, my son, which is very odd that he's given the choice of determining how this resurrected giant is going to be related to him. way. very strange. Um, she's also tricky. Um, and in, in Abkhaz's tale, she wants to sleep with um, her half-brother, her brother, Pataras, uh who doesn't want to commit that. And that's a, that's a theme we see in the Rig Veda of ancient India, too, between the god Yama and Yami, his sister Yami, god of death. Um, and uh, she actually deludes uh, Pateraz's wife who dies and takes on her form very much like a kind of a Celtic theme of impersonating someone so he can sleep with somebody and um, um, Pathraz wakes up and finds that uh, he's actually been sleeping with his sister uh, so that's a kind of that's that's something that suggests that we're actually looking at ancient theology here that these were these are humanized gods because that's the kind of the incestuous kind of thing is something that Uh, comes up in funny places and generally suggests um, uh, theological implications because gods have problems finding mates because they're generally all descended from one god, and they're all brothers and sisters, and they end up having to commit incest to get more gods, you know, another generation of gods. Um, So there's that, and then there's one where she um, sees a beautiful flower and, and plucks it, brings it home, it dies. Beautiful flower again, plucks it, brings it home, it dies beautiful flower plucks it, brings it home, and waters it. <laughs> and then she says, psit fad, water life psem uh, fad, lifelike, or breath-like, lifelike, is, so water is like uh, life to, to a plant. So she discovers what plants need, um, that kind of thing. Um, um, let's see, another one where she is making um some kind of a garment and a competition with a young man who is making a saddle and um see which one can can finish first before the day is over and um uh he's beating her so she turns and appeals to the sun and says to the sun uh stop please so i can i have more day to finish this of course, ignoring the fact that the, that the young guy would get more day too, but in any event, it allows her to beat out the young guy. And he says, "You're you're the best. You know how how to do these things." Uh, yeah, I,
0: I wondered. I, I'm glad you pointed that out too, because as I read that, I was like, "Well, you know, he's getting more sun as well." So <laughs> yeah. but somehow that didn't seem to.
1: Well, so she's, she's a she's a strong finisher apparently. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, there she- you
2: go. You know, consistency is not something you're going to get all the time in mythology and in folklore. It's it's notorious, and it drives my students nuts. I say, you know, enter here, all ye who <laughs> who are willing to give up on consistency and enjoy this tales. Um, it's it's odd. It's it's. I say that tales like this are sort of part of the wine cellar of the human mind. Oh, watching, I love that! I
1: love that.
2: You know, yeah, we're watching archaic thought patterns and the habits. Well, that- I, I
1: I love what what you say about that. Um, the the sort of details, the sort of odd, weird details that pop mm-hmm. up in these tales are are indications of of you know. L- little fragments of older thought
2: Mm -hmm. and that, um,
1: you know, that they are, it's historical layering that this idea of like, this is a myth that was, you know, that was told over and over and over again. And for some reason, this particular detail was really important to continue talking about. And therefore, you know, it's, it's like this little clue, um, Mm -hmm. to what was happening, and what was important when these tales were first being told. I think that's wonderful.
2: Yeah, well, that's what you look for. It's, it's, that's also what you look for in languages, too. You look for odd words and, and strange phrases and so forth. Um, I'll give you an example. marriage, Traditional marriage vows are, uh, till death do us part. Okay, what does that mean? Well, if you actually think about part as the verb, it's at the end of the sentence, and it's it's a preservation in English of an old Proto-Germanic sentence pattern of subject, object, verb, whereas almost all the Germanic languages are subject, verb, object, now like English. So the object's at the end, right? But not in that, that phrase, the verb's at the end. And if you go to German and you talk about embedded clauses, you know, like, das, ich, um, der, der, das mir gebracht habe, uh, the verb's at the end in an embedded clause, and it's only flipped up to the second position in regular simple sentences. So oh, it's a little tricky. you got to sort of just entangle that, and the student has to know some stuff about how things move around and so on and so forth. Yeah, um, that's
1: very present in Shakespeare as well. One of the reasons yes. why I I I think I enjoy Shakespeare as much as I do is I, I grew up with a German mother, so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm uh-huh. kind of used to the pattern of the verb being at the end of the yeah. sentence, and and mm-hmm. this idea of sort of circular thought. That yeah. Well,
2: do you know what "let" means? And I'll kill him who lets me. Um, Say yeah. that again. I'll kill him who lets me. In in uh, Hamlet, uh, it's let it's it was late long e t late not let. Uh, it wasn't marked by Shakespeare. Uh, and it's, uh, it, I will kill him who lates me, makes me late. Um, okay, and I, I would ear the earth. Okay, what does that mean? Ear, well, earth actually comes is a TH, like moon, month, true, tree, truth. Um, uh, uh, earth is from a root ear, which originally meant to plow. Oh. It has nothing to do with a thing on the sides of your head. Right. Um, so I would plow the earth, is what Hamlet's saying. Fascinating. Um, Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. So you have to know historical linguistics to get through Shakespeare sometimes. Yeah, um, absolutely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What, what so, does Konigsdeutsch? So, you, you do uh, no,
1: ein bisschen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Bisschen.
2: No, ein bisschen. Yeah. yeah.
0: Sorry, we were
2: just so <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I,
0: mean, I was curious just about you know you know we're talking about what's embedded and where these things come from. What is what's embedded in Satanaya? What are we getting about women's role in just from some of these? Because she is an uh, she's a really interesting character. Because when I was reading the the abduction sort of uh, quote unquote yes. abduction tale, you've got yep. this abduction tale that's sort of the the origin story, and then you've got um, you know all these other tales of her wisdom and her cleverness, almost uh, Odysseus-like, of being mm-hmm. able to figure out how to solve stuff. So what do, what do we get from her about that culture and women in that culture?
2: Well, I, th- I think there were more women at one time, and there are traces of alternate women. Um, but I think that uh, she has uh, sort of absorbed a whole bunch of uh, other features. Um, so there's uh, mizraj. um Uh, who has lots of children, it means. Um, uh, There's Adif, Lady Elbow, there's Lady Tree, uh, these sorts of things. And they're still still sort of there. Uh, If you go to Abkhazian, they're gone. (laughs) They're all all satanaya, Um, all all absorbed into the one figure. Um, I think one of the clearest ones is when Orzameg, as a young man tries to find a bride, and the bride's name is Satina, and that's literally the one who gives life. Uh, and she has to explain to him how <laughs> how to, to rescue her. He can't do it. He doesn't can't figure out anything. Um, so he rescues her from a land where not even birds fly around. So it's the land of the dead, kind of thing. Um, so she's a, a fertility figure, and I think that. Uh, you know today's it's a crowded world today you know it's how many billion people we have now and well we have this pandemic running through everything which you know all the you know, all the crowds and it doesn't help right but i always tell my students that the good old days the world was empty and people died all the time and women died in childbirth and the children died <laughs> so, so uh The idea of vitality, of life, of giving life, sustaining life was absolutely vital and central. Um, And so the the theological figure, the the kind of personification of fertility and all this uh, is crucial. Um, But Satanaya herself, particularly because her name means Sata is Iranian for 100, kentum in Latin, hund uh, with the red part off in English, um, that's the kind of sound algebra one does in historical linguistics. The that Circassian uh, mother, yeah the one the mother who's the one of a hundred. Uh, she symbolically represents the unity of the war band. And we think there, there is a marvelous woman, Chris Kershaw, Priscilla Kershaw, at Cornell who wrote a beautiful monograph on the war band we think that one of the reasons Indo-European spreading out was so successful was not only that they had horses and so forth, but they had a kind of military structure of a hundred warriors. That was kind of a group that was, you know, aimed at some, some area. Okay. You don't want to fight. We'll settle down and so forth. You want to fight, we're going to destroy you. You get it with the Roman centurions, uh, Kentum again, and um, uh, one we're representing 100 <clears throat> and um uh so all these 100 guys these warriors they would have been fictional brothers or in anthropology we say fictive fictional m- make-believe brothers why because they would have had one mother and um uh this would be satanaya and then they would, would protect the community whatever they'd go out and maybe conquer and raid and bring back more food and cattle or bring back wives or whatever um and so this seems to have been an integral and vital part of the Indo European social structure. And we are uncovering now the female figure that represents a unifying unifying factor of this. Her husband is sort of a old broken down kind of nobody that they keep trying to kill. <laughs> but, um you, you get it in King Arthur you get it in King Arthur and as uh, um, uh, he's dead now. C. Scott Littleton uh, and Linda Malcor. Helmut Nickel, also, he, he died. But there's some very strong indications that something weird happened to Celtic mythology. Um, the monks were writing it down because they thought it was going to die. At the same time, other monks were writing about King Arthur. Um, so, the kinds of stuff you see, Sean, and uh, your name is John in, in Gaelic. Sure. Right. Um, uh, you, you see the intense rivalry among the heroes in the traditional Irish lore, uh, and it's one of the defining features of the you know, Feast of Bricryo and this versus um, the um in Gaelic. And um, uh, you don't get this in King Arthur. You get the Knights of the Round Table, and they're all equal because they're sitting around the table. There's no head of the table. And, oh, what happened? Where, where are all the old heroes? They're not there. <laughs> we got a new cast. Uh, and one idea is, is that these were, these were Sarmatian, uh, these Step-Iranians brought in by the Romans as mercenaries settled in, in France and Burgundy and Breton area the north and middle of France, sort of the east side, uh, and in England along Hadrian's wall. And when they actually have found tombstones now to show these guys in their armor and, and so forth. And, um, um, we have you know, Linda Malkor and a guy uh, James Matthews uh, have a book coming out that, that argues very strongly that uh, this is a Roman leader named Artorias, um, because you can't explain Arthur in Celtic terms. It's, it's incomplete. The Ur is incomplete. Uh, Art is bare in Gaelic. Arthur is, is bare in Welsh, but there's no Ur. <laughs> But you got Artorius and he subjected to a Celtic pronunciation, you get Arthur. Uh, so it would seem that the Iranian steppe characters are very close to us. Uh, and the names, I went through the names too. You, know, you, you were mentioning them as Siths or Skiths. Uh, that name actually looks like Armenian. And although the Armenians are, are down in what is now Turkey, there may have been some left up on the steps. That's a common pattern we see with migrations. Uh, but Sarma, you go to, there was an old 19th century dictionary by uh, V. V. Miller. I know it doesn't sound Russian, but he was a uh, longer German. Veselov um, uh, Miller. Um, Sarma, Sarma in Ossetian, older Ossetian, was free man. And the Ta is simply a uh, um, collective ending. So it would be the band of free men. Um, uh, Scooty was probably the word for puppies um, because dog was a, a term for brave, a violent warrior. It wasn't a curse or derogatory title. Uh, and puppies would have been young people. So we, uh, this is something Kershaw uncovered. Um, uh, and so, uh, I think come back around to that
0: dog being a good term, dog being a term in. Uh, popular hip hop usage and urban usage meaning a guy who's a fighter a dog your
2: dog yeah. yeah yeah same thing i mean these things pop up independently from various various angles and new cultural sources and so forth and they represent that wine cellar you know yes uh, yeah we like we like our little doggies but they're also uh, formidable uh, can be formidable companions um but Nogai, the Nogai, for example, this is they speak a Turkic language, but uh it's in Mongol for dog. It's a war band. Um you can go to Russian villainy, Russian tales, and there's dog Tsar Um there's some kind of a Turkic enemy. And, but he's prestigious and powerful, so he's called a dog, dog Tsar. Tsars like well, Caesar Tsars. You know. Um so uh see Sataniya uh, establishes the war band as a kind of functional, unified social unit. Um, and then there's a question of berserkers, and that's where I've worked on that too. Um, we have a, an ancient carpet dug up from the permafrost of Siberia in 68 or 67. And the place is called Pazirik, P-A-Z-Y-R-Y-K, um, Pazirik in ter- local Turkic language. And there's a picture on the carpet of a figure without a mustache or beard wearing a kind of funny little hat dressed in a kind of robe holding a branch that has leaves and fruit on it. And in front of that figure is a man on horseback who has a big mustache. And, you know, that's typical male representation. And I think now from the Nart Sagas that we can interpret that as Lady Tree. <laughs> with this weird effort to, try to represent a combination of human and tree and, um, uh, except, uh, the god of the forge having, um, encountered her and going to have a tryst and falling in love and making babies. <laughs> 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 makes, a, makes a baby. She makes, Lady Tree gives off a baby, um, milky way. she Shishau is <laughs> milk. Shishau <laughs> is, um, is leg that is leg or trail and war is a road uh, so literally milky way uh, and um, she gives it's birth a very to beautiful, the stars very beautiful, very beautiful yeah.
1: Tale. yeah that is that was Incredible.
0: one of the well, can you can you say a little bit about i mean maybe just as as we start to to wind down a little bit the the warrior aspect the warrior woman aspect of these cuz there is the tale of course, there's the Lady Gunda, and then there is um, Lady Sana. You know those two great tales. The Sana, in particular, which we started off with, which is a short tale and a really beautiful one, mm-hmm. and as Adrian points out in her book, is a parallel to the way the Greeks tell one of the stories of Achilles and Penthesilea.
2: Right. Yeah. yeah.
1: I also thought it was really interesting that they. Point out in that very short tale. They make a point of saying that she had red hair, that she was a redhead.
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you have you have light genes uh, in in this region, um, and uh, the Abkhazians look more like Italians and have tend to have almost exclusively dark hair. But you go over the hills and start mixing with the Circassians, and you'll find people who. Quite pink and blonde-haired or red-headed, uh, and those those genes do f- pop up farther south occasionally, uh, much more so in the north. Um, and uh, there was a um, Circassian dialect group called Na-tro. Uh Tro is um, white, and Nazai, so light eyes, people with light eyes. Um, and when I was in, uh, um, my, in Mykop in the Circassian area. Um, I couldn't tell Russians from Circassians. Um, went up to a man, big, heavy man in a navy uniform. He was all pink and very light brown, uh, light light blonde hair. And I said, well, uh, "Shit, um how's it going?" <laughs> and Circassian. He turned to me and started talking right, in fluent Circassian. Wow! And, uh, I was sure he was a Russian. I was just testing, <laughs> playing, yeah. ball, like, testing things. Um, so, yeah, Lady Night Sana. I mean, there's, there's um, uh, Satanic or Satana, uh, Shatana, the S has become a Shah in Asitian in the last 70, 80 years. Uh, shatana, Satana, um, mother of a hundred again. Shakona is for a hundred, a son, mother with a hundred sons. Uh, but Satana in, in uh, Asitian has a beautiful tale where... Um, uh, the, her her husband actually accidentally kills their son. He doesn't know because the son's been sent out to fosterage to another family, and it's it's an accident with a knife at the dining table. And uh, a year goes by, and they uh, they forget about the son. They they're supposed to set a place of uh, 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 food and plate a uh, place to eat for people on the anniversary of their death. And they forget to do it, so he he gets permission to leave. The land of the dead, and um, goes and has uh, great hunting expeditions with his father. Then reveals him who he is, and um, he says, "He says to it was this young man.' You know, well, she said, of course that's our dead son. And she go, she recognizes and goes running out after him, trying to catch him. And um, uh, the the son has left his ring with the father. She has the ring, takes the ring back. And she says, let me have one look at your face. And he says, I can't, I'm uh, sundown. I'm going to be locked out of the land of the dead and I'll have nowhere, I'll be wandering loose soul. And she says, here's the ring. And she throws it at him and he holds up his hand and turns his face and the ring lands on his finger. And she just gets a glimpse of his face for a brief second in the twilight of the setting sun. And he's, he just scoots into the land of the dead before the gates close. Uh, it's called the Nameless Son of, of um, Urasmag, Urasmag as well as Meg in, in Ossetian. Urasmag, um, It's beautiful, very, very poignant story.
0: Yeah, They're really beautiful.
2: That's um, she, knows, she. understands in Ossetian too. She understands what's going on, uh, what to do. Um, so I mean, it's, today uh, there, there, there's, there's. They still have enjoy enormous respect. I had a, a dinner at a house of a gangster. <laughs> and uh, uh, when we got done eating, we went to a door. I didn't know what was going on. We all lined up on either side. And we started clapping in this rhythmic, unified way that, that's just typical of Eastern Europe. And, all. and uh, the door opens up. And there's an old lady and four young women in there. And they're covered in flour. And they've been making all the food. And they, they received all these applause. It's just like they performed a sonata or something at the oh, concert wow. It was really nice. Yeah.
1: Thank the people that uh, give you the sustenance. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely.
2: And they make, it, make it palatable. And-
0: it's funny. I, it makes me think of when I was a kid, I was at a Knights of Columbus banquet. And the guy gets out. And before they continued into whatever the banquet was going to be about, he thanked the ladies who made the spaghetti and they all came out. Oh. Everybody applauded for the women who did that. I said, it reminds me of that.
2: <laughs> That's um, interesting. Yeah. Very similar.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah similar. Um, so just to, to kind of, to, to wrap up, what mm-hmm. would you leave the listeners with about one that arts art talk is generally, because we've, you've done, I really want you to come back and, and I'm sure Dawn is as well to talk more about these but this is such a rich world. We have barely scraped the scratch the surface. But uh, at least, since for the focus of this podcast, which is about the, the women in the ancient world, what can you, what would you like to leave the listener about with what they can learn from these tales, and then also let them know about you know, specifically about your book and where they can get it.
2: Okay. Well, I think one thing that people should grasp and, and use as a guiding star for further reading and, and pursuits and their own curiosities curiosity or is that there are zones of, of Western civilization that are very poorly known uh, that have been suppressed for some reason, have been marginalized, uh, peoples to whom history has been grossly unfair. Uh, and often these people contain features, and preserve patterns uh, and habits or, or customs that really underlie a lot of what is much more familiar to us uh, and which sort of typifies, acts as the bedrock for sort of canonical Western culture that we really don't uh, don't understand. We don't really have a full grasp of where some of these habits and all have come from, whether it's clothing, whether it was chivalry, um, uh, whether it's the importance and autonomy of women. Um, and some of this uh, helps explain some of these weird things in, in ancient history, like the Spartans. The Greeks treated their women terribly. Uh, any monster in the Greek myth was going to be female. <laughs> but, but not the Spartans. And Gorgo, from which we get gorgeous, um, which is also based on a root for terrifying, was this drop-dead gorgeous queen that the Spartans worshipped, uh, and um, um, so they had a completely different attitude toward that. And I, so, sometimes I wonder if, if the Spartans, because they came in late into Greece, if they were not somewhere, you know, next door to the Circassians uh, uh, when they came down into Greece to about eleven hundred BCE. Um, so I, I would think that examining some of these these forgotten or suppressed peoples, damaged cultures, uh, is very rewarding and gives you, can give you insights into your own world that you might not get um, uh, in, in any other obvious way. Uh, so I do think that um, reading Nartsovias is good for you. <laughs> it helps give you <laughs> perspective not just on the Narts and the world that comes there, but on certain other stuff that is part of our world in a broader sense. Uh, there are two books. Uh, there is um, Nart Sagas from the Caucasus, the first one, is 2002, and there's Tales of the Narts, which is from Ossetian. Uh, uh, Nart Sagas is uh, Circassians, books, Abazas and Alpchaz, uh, all related linguistically. And Tales of the Narts is from Ossetian, and that was in collaboration with uh, an Ossetian scholar named Tamer Tamerlan Salbiyev, it uh, also has the, the name of an English expatriate that sort of like Ken Philby took up with the Russians, uh, Walter May. <coughs> Walter May. <clears throat> <But clears throat> Although I did translate one, a C.T.N. tale, uh, added it at the end, uh, sword in the lake like King Arthur. The, <laughs> uh, death, the hero throws his sword into a lake. Um but uh mostly I was dealing with the English, it was very obvious to me that after the first ten or twelve tales that whoever was translating it did not speak English <laughs> because they screwed up uh-huh. with those, <laughs> which are the hardest thing in english to to explain to anybody um, uh, so they're all they're both from Princeton University Press and they um uh, are available on paperback. Uh, I also have a third volume from Linkam Europa Europa. L-I-N-C-O-M dash Europa. It's a small publishing house in Munich, Germany. And it's a collection of, of Nart sagas in the original languages. And in which the original language, is a sentence in it, then it's completely analyzed and, and what we call glossed. So if you want to actually get some view of, of these languages, uh, you can go to that book. It's called Linguistic Reader <laughs> um, in Northwest Caucasian Languages. Um, and uh, uh, there are tales there in various Circassian dialects in, in this uh, um, almost extinct language, Ubuch, and Abaza, and two forms of Abkhazian. So those who have a linguistic passion, and I'm told 17% of the population has a linguistic passion. Um, <laughs> so And it's from Princeton University Marketing Department. So, um, um, Well,
0: Princeton would never lie, John.
2: <laughs> i know you're from princeton <laughs> yeah yeah it's a pretty place i've been there several times giving talks so. and um yeah so they um uh, uh they um uh were complaining they were they were a little bit worried about the very first volume because it was over <laughs> a certain size and about 250 is the limit you can publish a book at 250 with minimal risk. If you start going over that, you might really get serious loss of money, right? Mm. And I was pushing for 100, and, and I said, "Well, take out the text," because at the back of the book are all these analyzed texts, uh, sort of like a precursor to what I did with the, the Munich publisher. And uh, they said, oh, "No, no, we won't leave them in." I said, "Well, then you drop down to about 280, and you're okay." I oh, said, "No, no, leave them in." I said, "Why? Seventy percent of the population." Will buy the books just for those languages. And I said, "How do you know this? We know this from Lord of the Rings, mm. yeah, Volume Three, where they have Tolkien, um, as pronounced Tolkien. By the way, uh, Tolkien uh, invented these languages and, and right, yeah. make-believe texts. And I know people that became linguists uh, because of that. For <laughs> um, <Russell> souls." <Walsh. laughs>
1: <laughs> oh yeah yeah i was uh i definitely was um have have been a lifelong nerd and went through my uh my phase of of learning uh elvish in in high school so there you go i, I get it i get it
2: <laughs> there you go See, yeah.
0: that that's the thing though if a guy in high school said that he'd never date so <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I don't de- date either, so there you go.
2: <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, I want to thank uh, John Calarisa. This has been really, really amazing and wonderful. Thank you so much, John.
2: Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And as it's always. Lovely.
1: It's been really <laughs> wonderful to bring this to our listeners. Yeah. I yeah. love it. Love it.
0: And thank you, Dawn, as always, for your insights. And-
2: and- okay. Yeah. 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 Thank, yeah. you. thank you yeah, you're welcome yeah, it was my pleasure um, if you would you know just send me some idea of where it is so I can put it on my CV and make my department envious
0: absolutely I will, we'll <laughs> send we'll it off to you and on, on that I <laughs> want to thank all of our listeners this has been the 34 Circe Salon make Matriarchy great again thank you all for listening
1: take care everyone and blessed be